Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On today's programme, as British Airways struggles to recover from the chaos of a three-day suspension of services, we assess the damage to the airline's brand. That's what's going to damage their brand, not the glitches themselves, but the failure of the airline to tell customers what was happening. America's army of community banks yearn for more lenient regulation. The regulations are more onerous for larger banks, but nevertheless the community banks still complain that regulation falls too heavily on them. And why Portugal's economy minister is optimistic about his country's future. We are trying, first of all, to integrate a young generation that is highly qualified and has a lot of talent. So, first... Holidaymakers who'd been expecting to be listening to the sound of waves lapping against the beach this weekend instead heard this announcement from British Airways Chief Executive Alex Cruz. Today we have experienced a major IT system failure that is causing very severe disruption to our flight operations worldwide. All of our check-in and operational systems have been affected and we have cancelled all flights from Heathrow and Gatwick for today. Over a 1,000 BA flights were grounded over the long weekend, one of the year's busiest for British airports. More than 100,000 passengers worldwide had their plans ruined. Normal service is gradually resuming, but now there are complaints about lost luggage and accusations that the airline is profiting from stranded passengers. The share price of IAG, which owns BA, has tumbled by 4% in response to the chaos. To discuss all this and what it means for the airline's future, I'm joined by our aviation correspondent, Charles Reed. Charles, first of all, what do we know about the cause of this disaster? Well, the airline has ruled out a cyber attack and instead BA's CEO, Alex Cruz, has blamed it on a temporary power surge. Now, a lot of people have been phoning up the the power companies in in the possible places that supply energy to BA and and they've denied that this is the case. So a lot of people are very sceptical about this. There's definitely something wrong within BA's systems for this to happen. Presumably, there's there's little doubt that they're going to have to compensate the passengers affected. Do we yet know how much that might amount to? So this figure is going to be huge. I mean, some very conservative estimates say at least £50 million. Other analysts have said that this figure could be as much as £150 And that's excluding the damage to the brand and the lost revenue from future ticket sales. I suppose one thing that people find really hard to understand about this is that whatever the cause, whenever something like this happens, and we know it from our personal experience, the most common complaint you hear from the affected passengers is, why don't they tell us what's going on? And this seems to have been a particularly acute case of that. Is is that fair? I think that's very true. Passengers are very forgiving of when there are disasters, because there are things such as the weather which are out of control. Everyone at home has had some form of computer problem or computer glitch, and people are actually quite forgiving. 
For example, if we look at the studies about passenger loyalty, if a passenger has a perfect flight and everything goes perfectly, they are 50% likely to come back to the same airline. If things go wrong with that flight out of the airline's control, and at least they look like they're making an effort that they're trying to fix it, the chance of them returning to that airline rises to 95%. But if things go wrong and there's seemingly no attempt to fix what's going wrong or the fix is not very good, the likelihood to return falls way below 50%. And so, particularly in this case, when BA staff had no instructions for what to do, when people phoned up the customer service helpline to try to rebook their flights or ask for flight information, they were often kept on hold for hours and hours and hours only to be told, sorry, we can't give you any information because our systems are down. Information that there was was written on whiteboards, people were giving incorrect information, people waiting inside uh, Terminal 5 at Heathrow were told that uh, their flights were only delayed when on BBC News, uh, the BBC News channels, it was being reported that all flights were cancelled for the rest of the day. That's what's going to damage their brand, not the glitches themselves, but the failure of the airline to tell customers what was happening and to give good customer service in response to it. Now, some passengers, some of the press, and I think one of the trade unions representing BA's own workers has blamed all this on cost-cutting and in particular on outsourcing some IT services to India. Do you think there's anything in that? Perhaps BA's management has uh, cut back too hard on their IT infrastructure. This is a big false economy. Yes, it makes the quarterly results over the last few quarters look good. But the long term, the damage to BA's premium brand could outweigh any of those savings. Charles Reed, aviation correspondent, thank you very much. So, listeners, were your travel plans up in the air following the breakdown at British Airways? And have the weekend's events changed your perception of the airline? Let us know by tweeting us at Economist Radio or sending an email to radio at economist.com. Now, usually on Money Talks, when we cover American banks, we're talking about huge institutions with global brands. City, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, J.P. Morgan Chase, and so on. But in fact, all but 100-odd banks are small, so-called community banks. They seem to be in trouble. Their number is reducing by the day. Our banking editor, Patrick Lane, has been talking to some of their bosses and representatives and joins me now. Patrick, can we start just with a definition? Is it purely a question of size or what is a community bank? No, it's not entirely a question of size, Simon. They do range in size up to about $10 billion in assets, but most of them are below a billion They are local, so they serve a defined geographical area, although they can spread through merger and so forth. They are funded usually by deposits, and they provide retail and commercial banking services to people in their local area. And they really do pride themselves on knowing every square inch of turf, knowing their customers by name, and really being part of their local community. And is the regulatory regime different for them, or do they fall under Dodd-Frank? They do, but then there's Dodd-Frank and there's Dodd-Frank, so there are different rules for different sizes of bank. The regulations are more onerous for larger banks, but nevertheless the community banks still complain that regulation falls too heavily on them. And they must be uh, clapping, presumably. There's a new administration that's promised a, a bonfire of financial regulation. What in particular do the community banks hope for? One thing that they talk to me a lot about is the regulation of mortgages. In two respects. I mean, one is that they say that current mortgage regulation is like a cookie cutter. So in order to qualify for a mortgage to be bought by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which of course dominate the secondary mortgage market in the United States, it has to conform to certain rules which are really quite tightly drawn. 
if you're dealing with a lot of local mortgages, maybe in rural areas, then the sort of properties may be quite idiosyncratic. So their first complaint would be mortgage regulations are so tightly drawn that a lot of our mortgages won't conform. The second problem with a non-qualifying mortgage is that a borrower who's taken out a qualifying mortgage cannot sue the lender for mis-selling. If it's a non-qualifying mortgage, you can be sued. Now, I don't actually know of any cases where a borrower has sued the lender, but nevertheless, the community banks say they're worried about this. So one I spoke to said, this used to be our bread and butter. We don't do it anymore. Another said, I still do it, but with trepidation. So that's one big area that they're concerned about. And how optimistic are they? I mean, Donald Trump has called them the backbone of small business in the United States. But do they have a voice in the White House the way clearly Wall Street does with their heavy representation of former investment bankers? There are two parts to the answer, right? One is, yes, they are encouraged by the new administration and the sort of things that Donald Trump has been saying. They may find out more in the next few days because at the beginning of February, Mr Trump issued an executive order in which he asked the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, to report within 120 days on the whole range of American financial regulation. But of course, the administration's only part of the story here. There's also Congress. And here they are really very well connected because... You've got community banks all the way across the United States. As of June the 30th last year, I think there were 417 congressional districts in which there was at least one community bank chartered. And there were slightly more than that where there was at least one community bank active. So these guys know their congressmen, their congressmen know them, right? And they are really encouraged by what's going on in the House of Representatives in particular because Jeb Henseling, who is the chair of the Financial Services Committee of the House, has revived a bill he introduced last year, which didn't get anywhere, called the Financial Choice Act. It's got through his committee. It will probably get through the full House when it comes to that. They're very encouraged by that. It seems to have very little chance of getting through the Senate. So what they're now hoping for, the community banks, is that there will be something on which the Senate and the House can agree on which will ease the burden for community banks, even if it's not the Financial Choice Act in full. But they would like a sort of further bifurcation, as they call it, of financial regulation. Patrick Lane, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. And finally, to Portugal where one of the talking points at the annual Horasis conference was the economic relationship between northern and southern Europe. Among the attendees was Manuel Cabral, the economy minister in Portugal's anti-austerity government. Portugal's recently made modest progress with deficit reduction and economic growth. But will it last? Our senior editor, Anne McElroy, sat down with Mr Cabral and asked him about his strategy for improving the Portuguese economy. I escaped for a while from the conference centre, got away from all of those business folk and policy wonks to watch a parade in the middle of Cascais on Sunday. It was the firefighters in full fig with their brass hats. It's the kind of sight that you hope that you'll come across when you come to a Portuguese city. But it's also the sign of a heavily unionised public sector and that's a potential problem for the Minister of the Economy and his colleagues in government. Some people are talking about the miracle of, of Lisbon, Manuel. Things are going pretty well for you. You've managed to cut the budget deficit, but you've restored state pensions, wages, working hours to pre-bailout levels. This sounds too good to be true. Why is it true? Well, I think it's true because at the same time that we restore 
the income of, of people, that we put up the wages in a moderate way. We have work on improving the conditions for investment. The important thing to register about our growth is that it's a growth based on investment, based on 15% growth of exports. That, of course, allow us to have a 2.8, one of the highest growth in the European Union. I think confidence had a big role on this. Confidence of the investors, confidence of the consumers as well. But there's a lot of worry, and The Economist has written about it recently, among others, about public debt. It's still at around 130% of GDP from last year, as measured, despite your shrinking deficit. Now, what do you need to do about that? Because it's perhaps easier to go at other problems than it is to, to go at the debt one. The debt one is, is an important issue. What we have managed to do is to see our private debt, that was very high as well, decreasing 40% of the GDP in only five years. This deleveraging had already happened in the private sector, and it's starting to happen in the public sector. It has to be a stable, but the good thing is that we have a consensus. We have to take care of the debt to have uh, even more confidence from the investors. One of the optimistic messages that you were pumping out here uh, was about startups and about that sector. Uh, when you were asked questions about your strategy, you said this was one of the most important things for you. And yet I do have a challenge for you because what I, I see when as I travel around Portugal is I can come to something like the Web Summit in Lisbon and there are lots of enthusiastic young people, highly educated young people who want to be part of this digital future. And yet there's very little sign of it in actual companies breaking through or consolidating and I wonder whether you're in fact an incubator to send very bright people to lots of other places but you haven't yet found the way to capture the gains for the Portuguese economy. Fair challenge. I think a lot of these firms are growing up now and what we have is also some startups that started with Portuguese founders that started in the UK or in Germany that are now growing up and accelerating and are bringing a lot of jobs to Portugal. So we are having a very interesting moment in terms of startups. But where is it? I mean, I keep hearing from entrepreneurs that they say this is all very well, that you, you, know, you speak their language, but in fact there's a sort of calcified structure of the state and of the government. And if you don't face up to that, this is going to be a bit of a bubble. I don't think it's, it's a bubble because what we are seeing now is not just a lot of new startups, but two other phenomena. Some of the startups that were startups five or ten years ago now having hundreds of jobs and exporting to a lot of markets and being quite successful globally, but also s startups that were successful in the US or the UK coming back to Portugal. Last one for you. The promise of the miracle of Lisbon is that you can carry on bringing down your debt, but that you can also deliver some of the things you were elected to do as a government in terms of an anti-austerity program. What do you need to do to avoid that clash of values becoming too difficult for your government to bear? We have to have a growth that brings people together, a growth where everybody benefits. And this is what we are trying to do. We are trying, first of all, to integrate a young generation that is highly qualified and has a lot of talent. If we don't give an opportunity to this generation, we are not giving a good opportunity to the country. Thank you very much, Manuel. Thank you. And McElvoy reporting from Portugal. That's all for this week's Money Talks. If you'd like to respond to anything in today's programme, do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio 
or by emailing radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.